I want to begin this morning by saying uh, that I'm glad that you're here and welcome. And uh, I-, I wanted to kind of explain what we have been doing for the past three weeks because it is unorthodox uh, to come to a Christmas service or a service taking place on Christmas Eve and not to go immediately to Luke chapter 2 and hear the story of how Jesus was born. But one of the things that's grabbed hold of me as we come to this Christmas season has been that there's a lot of people that just miss the point. They sing the Christmas songs as they play throughout the mall and they walk along and they're able to hum most of the tunes and they recognize the choruses and they don't recognize what's really going on at Christmas. Did you know that it's possible to miss the point of something? And that brings us really to what was the point of God becoming incarnate among man? What was the point of Jesus taking on flesh and sacrificing all of the glories of heaven that he might dwell among men on earth? Well, Fortunately, this isn't something that we have to speculate or guess at. The Bible tells us in clear terms that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came in order that salvation might be possible. He came in order that all those who believe in Him and put their faith in Him would be saved. Unfortunately... Even though God sovereignly had prepared a time that Jesus had come, He had prepared the nation of Israel, He had prepared all of history leading up to this event that the Savior might be born, even in Jesus' day, there were people that missed the point. The Jewish people had a special blessing from God that goes all the way back to the Old Testament where we find that God made a covenant with Abraham. And he created, through Abraham's descendants, a nation for his own possession. A nation that he said and promised he would use to bless the entire world. And there was this expectant hope. This expectation that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be born in the city of David. You can imagine, for generations, for time, and all of this waiting, the people had been anticipating the Messiah's birth. But when He finally came, they missed the point. I wonder if there aren't people today who are still in church, involved in the ministries of the church, people who are serving God, who say that they love God, that are singing Christmas songs, that do not realize that we continue to expectantly anticipate the arrival of our Savior again. Do we miss the point of Christmas? In Luke chapter 15, we find the prime example of how the people in Jesus' day missed the point of His ministry. At the beginning of this chapter, the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble against Jesus because they make the observation that Jesus entertains sinners and tax collectors. He sits with people who would be considered a pariah in our society, people who are outcasts, people that were dejected, people that were not invited to come into our homes and be a part of our life, people who were not included in the expectation that the ministry of God has not only the potential but the ability 
to transform lives. They missed this. Jesus, in response, teaches the Pharisees in a series of three parables at first. Let me tell you what a parable is in case you don't know. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. In the first parable, Jesus talks about how the shepherd out in the field willingly leaves 99 of his sheep to go after one sheep that had been led astray. After grabbing it and bringing it back home, he rejoices. In the second parable, he tells of a woman who having ten coins loses one coin. After she had swept the house and found it, she called all of her friends over to rejoice. There's an escalation in this series of parables as we move to the third one. We move from 100 sheep to 10 coins to the parable we're looking at today, two brothers. This is perhaps the most infamous parable that Jesus ever spoke. The parable of the prodigal son. But in looking at this and preparing for this message and looking at this text, I realize that's a terrible name for this parable. We've been calling it the parable of the prodigal son, but the more I study and the more I look at this, the prodigal son's not the main focus of this parable at all. It's actually the other brother. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, let's read the Bible. Hear what God has to say. I'd invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15 where where we will read from verse 11 through to the end of the chapter in verse 31 because I think it's important that we take the whole thing as a whole. And before we do that, let us pray because there is not one person who is able to read and understand the Word of God without the help of the Spirit. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning thankful for the blessings that you have given to us, the ability to gather and the privilege to gather in your name. Father, I thank you for the salvation of those that are seated here. God, I thank you for the the ability to be called your sons and your daughters. Lord, I pray for those that have not yet been adopted by you, for those who are awaiting their adoption. God, that you would use your text and your word to touch their hearts and to bring them to truth. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Bible says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out of, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants 
have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer to be called your son. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he became and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, he has de- who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always here with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. A man with two sons. In the culture of Jesus' day, whenever he was telling this parable, it would have been normal for the, the normal practice in terms of inheritance would be that the oldest son would be, get the chief end of any inheritance that was coming to him. In fact, it would be a double portion. So you can imagine a man that had two sons, his property would be divided into three equal parts, and the oldest son would get two parts, and the youngest son would get one part. And there is a reason for this, and there's explanations for that, but none of it we really need to totally understand to look at the youngest son's request. Having the lesser portion, the younger son comes to his father and he asks, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. His first request is, Father, before you die, before I have any claim to inheritance, go ahead and give me your property so that we can disassociate from one another. This is the equivalent of saying, why don't you just go ahead and die so I can have what's coming to me? That's exactly what he says. His property was divided. The father graciously, and I think even mercifully, gave him this request and gave the son what was coming to him. Only to find that his son, in response with everything that he had, he sold his father's property 
And he went off into a foreign country where he didn't have to live with him. And he separated himself and he foolishly, this is where we get the word prodigal, he foolishly spent everything that he had. You know, I read this story and I'm reminded, not only is there more than one way to skin a cat, there's more than one way to be lost. I don't know if you realize this, but being raised in a Christian household or being raised even in a country that's culturally Christian to whatever extent we give those terms to, having the privilege of hearing the gospel proclaimed around us is a special blessing. I think about, uh, we often, when we talk about missions, we like to focus on the hardship that comes with living in a third world country. We talk about the difficulties of our missionaries in Zambia as they try to put shoes on children's feet so that they don't step on poisonous thorns. The real destitute position in this world is not hearing the gospel. One of the core beliefs of our church is that everything that needs to be known about God is revealed from the beginning in creation. And because of this fact, every person that lives in this world stands condemned. I really struggled with this when I first understood all the implications. I remember sitting in, uh, it was a discipleship triad. So there were three of us. One discipler, two people being discipled. Me and my partner in crime, Alberto Herrera, were sitting alongside Brother Wade teaching us, and we were just walking through what this biblical doctrine means. I said, Brother Wade, I just really struggle with this part here. You're telling me that someone that for all intents and purposes, does not have the ability to put their faith in Jesus Christ because they don't even know His name, is going to hell, even though by God's sovereignty, they never heard His name. That's a pretty serious implication, isn't it? Brother Wade's response stuck with me for a long time. Brother Derek, that's the reason for our urgency in missions. That's the reason we hit the ground running. That's the reason the church exists. That's the reason why upon salvation we're not simply called up into heaven so that we don't have to deal with the muck of the world anymore. God leaves us here by His design that the gospel might go out into those outermost places because those people who stand condemned without the ability to place their faith in a name that they never knew, those people need to hear that name. But what are we doing with that special blessing of knowing Jesus' name? I said there's multiple ways to be lost. The first one is demonstrated for us by the youngest son. With a special blessing from his father, he squandered all of his possessions. You can be lost by squandering what you have. And you know what really sucks about squandering your special blessings? When you squander long enough, you begin to desire pig's food. 
Keep reading in our text and we find in verse 16, there were two circumstances that came against this youngest son. Verse 15 begins, the first circumstance was brought by his own design. And this is what happens when we're given special blessing or we're given special privilege, we're given the ability or position or whatever it is in life as a privilege. And we squander what that privilege means in our life. We don't use our position for advantage. We don't use our money for God's glory. When we do things contrary to the way that God lives, the result is we bring consequences upon ourselves. But unfortunately, the consequences we're able to inflict upon ourselves aren't always enough to bring people to rock bottom. The second circumstance is that there was a famine in the country that the brother went to. Fortunately, and I see this as an act of mercy, when I'm not able to inflict inflict enough pain on myself, God fills the vacuum. Famine broke out in the land. The youngest son, having squandered his special blessing long enough, began to desire the food he was feeding to pigs. As he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, he was starving. Some people don't think it's very gracious or very kind to say that it is necessary sometimes to leave people to their own devices. But the unfortunate truth is sometimes rock bottom is the only hope that we have that people who stand condemned would realize they have a loving father. Rock bottom comes in a lot of different places for a lot of different people. Sometimes rock bottom is bankruptcy. Sometimes it's marriages falling apart. Unfortunately, sometimes rock bottom is a six-foot grave. And at that point, any hope of repentance is gone. The the son reaching rock bottom before that, I love verse 17. He comes to himself. He came to himself. He came to his senses and he prepares a speech. He says, thinking about the reality that whenever he was at his father's house, his father's servants were provided for. They didn't have any issues, but his father's hired hands were able to eat better than he was eating. He said, it would be better for me to return to my father, but let me prepare a speech before I go. And he prepares it. Look at his speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. There's four parts to that. Pay attention. I sinned against God. I sinned against you. The third part, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The final part, don't treat me like a son. Treat me like a hired servant. He prepares a speech, 
getting ready to go back to his father after squandering what he had. He's going to be found again and there's great hope in this. There's a reality that even though every person is condemned by their own sin, we have a father that embraces us upon repentance. And so the son prepares himself to go to his father and to tell him everything that he has prepared. By the way, it's not just enough to prepare a speech of repentance, but you have to follow through with action. And that's what the son does in verse 20. He arose and came to his father. But what happened? If you're looking at verse 20, you know that the son wasn't even able to make it to his father's house. But while he was still a long ways off, the father runs to him in order to meet him. I get the sense here that the father and anyone who has ever experienced having a loved one or someone that we care for a far way off. You know, every time you look out that front window, you wonder if their car won't pull in the driveway. You know, every time you walk through, walk through the kitchen by the phone, you wonder if it won't ring and on the other end it might be them. To love someone and to leave them to their own devices doesn't mean that we stop caring for them. I get the sense here because the father stood up, because he ran towards his son. I imagine him sitting on his porch late into the evening, or or I suppose it was morning. That's probably more textually accurate. Waking up and wondering if his son might be coming home. When he does, he runs to him. And the son begins to give him the speech that he has prepared. Father, I've sinned against heaven. That's part one. And before you. That's part two. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's part three. Let's have a little exercise this morning. Look in your Bible. Can you find part four? Make me a hired servant that I might work in your fields. You won't find it. Because in verse 22, we find the beautiful conjunction, but, but the son is interrupted by the father as he says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a finger on his hand and shoes on his feet. All of these things are a symbol of restoration. This son that has squandered every special blessing that he had from his father is rejoicing or being replaced or being reinstituted as a son. He's given a robe. He's given a ring as a symbol of authority. He's going to walk with sandals on his feet. Not only that, verse 23, the father says, bring a fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Let us have a big old party. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The son gets cut off by his father in the middle of his prepared speech in order that the father might restore his son and welcome him home. There's a possibility that we have squandered the special blessing that has been given to us as children of God. There's a possibility that we have squandered what we have been given by being born in a free and great country where we are able to sit under the teaching of the Bible. There's a possibility 
we've squandered our unique privilege in being able to download the entire text of the Bible in a language that you understand for free and yet never read it. There's a possibility that we squander the special blessings that God has given to us. And if that's the case, the good news is all we have to do is simply turn around and repent. God, as like this merciful Father, will not hear from us that we are to be made servants or hired hands in His field who are not a part of the family. Rather, He tells us, I will restore you completely. He will restore all the blessings that were yours and He will give to us all that we need, making us sons and daughters once again. It doesn't matter how far we have strayed away from God, how much disobedience has allowed to encroach upon our actions. God is willing to restore us. Even when we're lost. Because we squandered what we had. I said there's more than one way to be lost, though. I think this is the main point of the parable. If you remember, I said the context that caused this entire conversation to break out, the entire reason Jesus began teaching in parables before the sinners and the tax collectors and the disciples and the Pharisees that were standing around Him was because some, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of His day, those who should have known better than anyone else what God was doing in sending a Messiah, those that should have known better than anyone else what the covenant promises were in Genesis 12 when God said, by making Abraham a nation, He was planning to bless all the nations of the world. They said, He eats with sinners and tax collectors. Comes now the oldest brother, the firstborn, those that were entrusted with these special promises first. And they come in a field not even knowing that their brother had returned and they hear dancing in the house and they don't even go in. Look at verse 26. He calls out to one of the servants and he asked, what are all of these things? What do they mean? Verse 27, the servant explains to him that his brother has come home, that his father has restored him, that he's given him a robe, that he's set a ring on his finger, that he put sandals on his feet, that he's killed a fattened calf, that they're partying because their brother is back. Doesn't that sound like a reason to rejoice? Doesn't that sound like a reason to jump up and down? Some of you are looking down at your Bibles right now instead of really thinking this through. And maybe you don't have a brother like I do that's been outcast. Maybe you don't have someone that you love that was missing at your Thanksgiving dinner that you're hoping might come to your Christmas dinner. Maybe you don't know what it's like to have an empty chair at your table with someone that's out in the world while you're waiting for them. Or maybe you're like the Pharisees who would be upset if the person that has brought dishonor to your family name showed up this Christmas. Loved ones, there's two ways to be lost. The worst thing I hear as a pastor at the end of a sermon is the people that will come up to me and say, I sure wish my brother were here. You would have really got him with that sermon. 
Man, it's too bad so-and-so was out of church this morning. They really could have heard that. Politely, believe it or not, I have this ability, although I've not mastered it completely. I hold my tongue, and I say to myself, quietly in my mind, I just hope you heard it. And then I go sit in my office, and some of you are thinking this. I go sit in my office and I say, man, I hope I heard it. You can be lost by squandering what you had. That's easy enough. And most of the time we read this parable, and perhaps this is the reason it's infamously been called the prodigal son, because we would rather put our attention on the prodigal son that's not at church on Christmas Eve. Remember the context. Who's the firstborn? You can be lost by missing the point. You know, do you know what the most frustrating topic is to teach? I don't teach topically, but do you know what the most frustrating subject matter to cover in a Christian setting is? It's evangelism. It's simply exhorting brothers and sisters to be faithful and sharing their faith. That should be a, an easy hitter, shouldn't it? Do you know why it's the most frustrating topic to teach on? Because when we have the privilege of teaching on the love of God, when we have the privilege of teaching on the nature of faith, when we have the, the ability to teach on these kind of out there and ethereal ideas about what it means that God is making Himself flesh among man and how the Trinity is related to one another. I have no idea what your application is. I think it's different for a lot of different people when we begin to apply those things to our life. It's different. Do you know what our application is when we get to teach about sharing our faith with our loved ones? It's sharing your faith with your loved ones. There's not a whole lot of options for you to pick from. You either share your faith with your loved ones or you don't. You either make it a priority in your life or you don't. Brother Lane was visiting with me one time and he said that he thinks I get frustrated when I don't see people respond to messages the way that I think that they should. And he's right. I do do that. Fortunately, I can always fall back on their application might be different. It might be personal. It might not be something that I can see. I don't have that ability when we talk about sharing our faith. So fortunately, I'm positioning myself for an argument later. I get to be frustrated. Now, I'm not really frustrated. I struggle like anyone else to see why it's necessary that all the blessings of the church should be extended to all of the world, especially when there's so many people out there that remind me of the traumas that I've experienced in my life, good, bad, or ugly, whatever's gone on in my world. There's people that remind me of suffering, and I think for this older brother, his younger brother is a reminder that one-third of the property that was supposed to be held together, that's a reminder of what his parents had gone through. Who knows, maybe generations had assembled 
assimilated is gone because he squandered it. And we find out in this section of Scripture, he didn't just squander it on bad investments. He didn't just hit a, a streak of bad luck. He squandered it on prostitutes. Someone that went off into a foreign country disregarding everything that his father had done to bring him up in this world. I can understand his frustration. Here's the problem. I'm not the older brother in this picture. I'm, the, I'm not the younger brother in this picture. I'm the older one. And I'd be tempted to say that most of you are not prodigal sons that had wandered off, but you're the older brother that's been here thinking, I sure wish so-and-so would have been here to hear that message. How long has it been since the church has seen someone at the bottom of the discipleship cycle? How long has it been since the church has truly been hospitable to sinners and tax collectors? And you say, well, it's not by lack of trying. If you're not out there inviting them, it is by lack of trying. And what is our attitude when we see someone among us, when someone comes near us and they resemble that younger brother? I tell you something, this is all really an issue of faith. I look at the dejected in this world and I say, it's simply not possible that someone's entire life can be turned around so dramatically. If you have faith in God, you know it is. As a matter of fact, if you've been saved by God from any outskirt region, you know that it is because you have an example in and of yourself. I know what God has brought me through. I know what God is able to do in the life of people. The problem is I don't have enough faith to be patient for God's results. I want to see it all at once. I want to say, come in, dress like me, look like me, talk like me, do the things that I do. That's how I'll know that God's working in your life. I'm so glad when I was a part of my discipleship triad that Brother Wade remembered God didn't work like that in his life. Because he didn't work like that in my life either. It took a while for me to talk differently. It took a while for me to walk differently. But by the grace of God, I see transformation continuing to happen. This brother was upset. He was angry, verse 28 says. He was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out to meet him, to entreat him. This is encouraging him to pull him in and say, Son, come in. Your, your, son, my, your brother is here. Come inside. Let's, let's have a good time. I've made a brisket. In fact, it was, an entirely, it was a whole fattened calf, so there's bacon too and steaks. Pork loin, dry roast. What's that English thing where they wrap it in mustard and then like they put pastry on it? Beef Wellington. I've never had it, but I really want to try making it. It just looks really complicated. They killed a whole calf. This is some party. Come on in. Let's have a good time. And instead, 
We find in verse 30 what the attitude of this older brother was. He said, When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, I'm sorry, we have to move back. Verse 29. He says, You never even gave me a young goat. You want to know, the, you want to know how to recognize if you've developed an attitude problem? You're more focused on what you think you deserve to have received. Here's the brother. His brother's returned. His father's happy, probably for the first time since his youngest son's left. And he says, you've not even given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends, even though I've been here all this time. Father asks him to come in again. And here we find the real crux of his argument, verse 31. He said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Now, this is literal. Literally, everything that the father had was his son's possession. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother, because he was dead. He wasn't even walking in the same world as us. But now he's alive. He was lost. But now he's found. I read this story and the reason I say it's not about the prodigal son It's because Jesus is addressing the Pharisees that were upset that he entertained sinners and tax collectors. I don't think the church is upset because of the people that we entertain. Can I tell you something cool about this church? You guys are very hospitable. But I do think you're too comfortable. And you run the risk of missing the point. We are not the church so that we can preach good sermons and sing good songs, have good fellowships. That's a part of being the church. That's how we do what we do. But it's not why we're here. We are the church to carry on the work that Jesus began when he came into this world to seek and to save the lost. If we miss that point, we are just as lost as those who squander the blessings that had been afforded them by being born our neighbors. We're lost because we miss the point. Your Christmas Eve service, service this year is a call for urgency. I don't have a list of applications I can suggest to you. There's not a list of different things that you can do. And perhaps unfortunately for you, everyone in this room is going to know whether you applied this text to your life or not. 
Will you be urgent in seeking the lost? Will you make it a priority in your life? Will you be patient with them as we disciple them together? You're mature enough to disciple. Would you sacrifice your life that you might share it with them? I love what Paul writes to the church of the Thessalonians. For you know, brothers, the suffering, the suffering and the shameful treatment we received in Philippi. Just previously he has said, and you became imitators of us. You became imitators of us in the word. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to put you down this morning. Will you receive the word this morning with, with much affliction, even though it convicts your heart, even though it stirs your mind, even though it makes you realize that there's more work to be done? Will you receive it with the joy of the Holy Spirit? Can I tell you what happened to that church in the Thessalonians? Can I tell you what happened to them? Paul says, you receive the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. And not only the believers of Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord didn't just go out from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but the gospel of our God went out everywhere so that we need not say anything. The ministry of the church, when we respond to the word the way that we are supposed to, it doesn't just go out to our neighbors, it doesn't just go out into our communities, but it goes out everywhere. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, these, these three men that have taken charge of sharing the gospel, they're apostles that are traveling, they're not the plan that God has, it's the church. He says, we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the reception we received among you and how you turned to God. Getting a little distracted. Got one third point. It's very short. While there might be multiple ways to be lost, there's only one way to be saved. Our text doesn't tell us what the younger brother, older brother did or how he responded. It ends on a cliffhanger. The same repentance that we saw in the younger brother is the only thing that will save him. So will we repent? Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for Christmas. <coughs> Father, I thank you that you orchestrated all the events throughout the world, that you would come in such a time to be born in Bethlehem, to fulfill prophecy that you had written, to make it clear to us that you were the Savior. God, that you have removed any doubt in our minds, that you have given us faith and confidence. But Lord, I pray that you would give us faith the size of a mustard seed, that we might be able to walk in the places that we didn't even realize were possible to be walked in. God, that we could walk with full conviction. Help us to see that nothing else matters. 
Help us to know that there is nothing else in this world that matters but the work you have given to us. For by grace we have been saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd ask you to stay.